Well, Jerry set it up well, third week of a 13-week series on what it means to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. I want to take two passages today and tie them together. First is from uh, the first gospel in the canonical scriptures, Matthew's gospel chapter 6. Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen in power. Peter stands up. We catch his message in the middle. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked and this crooked generation. But those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. It was dedicated on October twenty eighth, eighteen eighty six. It was made by a Frenchman whose name was Friedrich. Art holy. And when it was erected, it was three, 305 and a half feet tall. 
Now, those are some of the basic facts every one of us has heard, maybe knows, about the Statue of Liberty. But what isn't so well known are some facts that Elizabeth Mitchell, in her new book, Liberty's Torch, brings to light. If you're like me, you thought that the Statue of Liberty was a gift from the French government to the American government, and it wasn't. In fact, all of the money raised to build that statue, none of it came from the French government. A lot of it was privately given. If you're like me, you thought that when Bartholdi built the statue, he intended it for the New York Harbor. He didn't. He wanted it in the Suez Canal. But the Egyptian government said no. And so he figured, well, maybe America will take it. You know, he had never been to the United States. And when he came, he wasn't very impressed. He said it this way. What's lacking in the cities and most of the men is charm and taste. America is like an adorable woman who's chewing tobacco. Now, the conventional wisdom is that Bartoli's mother was the model for the statue's head. And she wasn't. Nobody knows. But after extensive research, Elizabeth Mitchell's conclusion is she believes it was actually Bartoli's brother, Charles, who was at the time a promising law student, but he ended up in an insane asylum. And then when you start thinking about those facts and conjecture, you begin to think that Joan Rivers was on to something when she said, sometimes a lie is a lot kinder than the truth. You know, that's true in every dimension but the Scriptures. No lie is kind when it comes to God's Word. So Matthew tells us that Jesus sees the crowd. He leaves and goes up on a mountain. He sits down and begins to teach his disciples. Not just the twelve, but those others who follow him. And he looks at them, and in the middle of the message, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust and thieves cause issues. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Years ago, Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, got a call from his broker. And he said, Andy, I need to tell you, you just had a 50% decline in all of your assets. And Stanley said, what? How did that happen? And the man said, well, first of all, there's been a 25% correction in the market, and the other 25% is the money you gave to your ministry. You're down 50%. And Andy said, no, actually, I'm just down 25%. Because all the money I gave to ministry is in heaven. Now, see, that's what Jesus is talking about. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. The eye is the lamp of the body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And you say to yourself, how does that connect with laying up treasures in heaven? 
I mean, what does my eye have to do with my wallet? And for years, people have answered that question wrongly. You read the commentaries, and if they even address the issue, you'll find that in most of them, they'll say there's no parallel between what Jesus says when he says, lay up treasures in heaven, when he starts talking about the eye. Some say it's a redaction error. That means a copying error. They separate it. They say first he's talking about tithing, and then he's talking about not lusting. And yet, that is absolutely false. Jesus is not separating your eye and your wallet. He's linking them. You see, in Jesus' day, to talk about having a good eye was talking about your attitude toward another person. The Jews used to say, a stingy man has a bad eye. In other words, his eye is blind to the needs of those that are around him. He has a bad eye. He can't see the needs of others. But to have a good eye is the opposite. It means to look out and see the needs of others and respond to those needs with generosity. Because to exercise your good eye is, according to Jesus, laying up treasures in heaven. That's exactly what the king in the last chapter of Proverbs is talking about when he talks about the virtuous woman. Remember that? Chapter 31. The excellent wife, the virtuous wife. You know what that word virtuous in Hebrew literally means? Excellent virtue, that's how you read it. Or excellent or uh, virtuous. We read it in English. You know what it means? It actually means generous. What this king is saying is, my mother taught me that to find a generous woman, a woman with a good eye, very rare, but that's the greatest gift you can find. The Hebrews used to talk about it this way. They talked about seeing as the ability to respond to the needs of others. So if you're selfish and your eye is dark, you will become more and more self-focused, inward-gazing. But if you're generous, if you have a good eye, you'll not look at yourself and your needs, you'll look at the needs of others. Remember when Abraham is up on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac? The Bible says he has his arm in the air and his knife is poised and he's ready to plunge it into his son Isaac. And the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, do not kill your son, for now I see that you are willing to not withhold from me even your only son. Stop. Now I see that you are willing to offer your only son to me. You know what the Bible says immediately after that? Abraham looks over his shoulder and sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so he takes that ram out and puts that ram on the altar and sacrifices it to God, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In other words, the ram is a substitute for his own son. And then Abraham does something amazing. 
He calls that place. Now, here's how you read it in English. The Lord will provide. Right? Ram instead of Isaac. The Lord will provide. But actually, in Hebrew, the best translation is this. The Lord sees. The Lord sees. And when you think about that definition, you think there's no better name for that place than the Lord saw. A thousand years later, on that same site, David will purchase that site and offer sacrifice there. Why? Because the Lord is king of Israel, or because David's king of Israel, and he sees that the Lord has provided for every need. Then a thousand years later, Jesus will go to that very site, and he himself will be sacrificed. On that same location. Why? Because the Lord sees your need, my need. In all of history, can you think of anyone that has better eyes than God? 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, another rabbi by the name of Zechariah asked his disciples this. What is the best path to take in life? One of his disciples said to have a good eye. Another said to be a good friend. Another said to be a good neighbor. Well before State Farm. Another said, no, it's to be wise about the future. And then finally the last disciple said, sir, I believe the best path in life is to have a good heart. And when the rabbi heard it, he said, this is the wisest answer of all. For it includes all the rest. To have a good heart means that you will have all of the other things, including a good eye. And that's exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. I mean, think of this. It's 50 days after the resurrection. It's 10 days after the ascension. It's 10 days after Jesus had said, you wait in Jerusalem and I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. Meaning what? We talked about that last week. I'm going to put my heart in you. I'm going to fulfill the words of Ezekiel. I'll give them a new spirit and a new heart. And Jesus is saying, you wait for it. And now it's happened. Luke says, a mighty rushing wind fills the place where they are gathered. Where are they? You say they're in Jerusalem. But where in Jerusalem? They're in the upper room. They're in the same place that Jesus did all of his big work prior to the cross. The Bible says a fire begins to descend on them like tongues. They begin to speak in new tongues. And in the middle of this, Peter stands up full of the Holy Spirit and he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, this is no surprise. This is what Joel the prophet talked about and this is what Jesus said would happen just ten days ago. You know, when you examine this second half of his speech there, 25 verses, he raises up Jesus ten times. By name or by pronoun. 
In 25 verses, Peter mentions Jesus 10 times. Why? Four reasons. At least. First, notice the receipt. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of all of that, we are witnesses. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned uh, G.K. Chesterton? A reporter came to him on a London street corner and said, is it true you became a Christian? Chesterton said, yes. He said, well, may I ask you a question? What if at this moment, right behind you, the resurrected Jesus, the risen Lord, showed up? What if he were standing right behind you? And Chesterton said, he is. That's exactly what Peter said. Not only does Peter link the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, he links the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the disciples together. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Now think of this. It's not the wind that's the heart of the promise. It's not the tongues that are at the heart of the promise. It's the heart that is born of a new relationship. Peter says it this way. All that you've seen and heard here is exactly what God said that He would do. He'd put a new spirit in us. And He'd give us a new heart. And everything you see and hear is an elaboration of that new heart. In other words, what Peter is saying is, we can't help this. The Holy Spirit has given us a new heart and a new perspective. And then second, notice the reach. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from His Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. One time Billy and Ruth Graham were sitting in church and the offering plate came by. Billy got out his wallet and put in a 20 and as soon as it hit the plate he knew he made a mistake. And so he reached in to grab the 20 and exchange it for a 10, and Ruth slapped his hand and pushed it away. And he whispered to her, Ruth, I thought it was a 10. Ruth said in a whisper, in God's eyes it is. Now that's what Peter's saying about the Lord. Everything Jesus has received from the Father, Everything Jesus has received from His Father, He is pouring out to us. And He's held nothing back. And what you see is simply a reflection of God pouring into us what He promised to give us. Then third, notice their response. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now think about who these people are. Ten days earlier, we talked about this last week, ten days earlier, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, Luke tells us that two men in dazzling white 
stand right next to the disciples and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into the heavens? It's the only time in the Bible those disciples are called by that description, men of Galilee. Why? Because what Galilee means. The name Galilee means circle. And so what the angels are saying to the disciples is, when the power and presence of the Holy Spirit takes over your heart, He will enlarge your circle. Why are you looking into the heavens? I'm telling you that when the promise of the Father and the Son come upon you, you will see far beyond your little circle. Now prior to Pentecost, Get this, prior to Pentecost, Peter and the other disciples are as nationalistic and xenophobic as anybody in the world. They have a natural disposition to disregard foreigners, and you see it all through the Gospels. Why would you be talking to the Samaritan woman? Should we call fire down from heaven on these people? But here, Peter speaking for all the other disciples, they're as open as can be. Peter in front of him, he sees Parthians and Medes, Edomites, Elamites, Egyptians, Cretans, Cappadocians. And you know when he looks at them, he sees himself. When he looks at those people with his new eye, he sees them just as he looks at himself. And you know how I know that? Two ways. First of all, he says when he opens this part of his message, brothers. And then when they respond, they say, brothers, what shall we do? Why do they call them brothers? Why do these foreigners call Peter a brother? Because they have been cut to the heart in the same way that Peter and all the rest of the disciples have been cut to the heart. Finally, notice the realization. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What promise? What promise? What promises to us? Forgiveness and the presence of God to everyone who believes. You know, in 1927, Bertrand Russell, the agnostic, wrote an essay entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. You know what he said in that essay? He said, the intolerance that has spread over the world with the advent of Christianity is one of the most curious features. Now, why would an agnostic like Bertrand Russell say that? Why would he say, ever since Christianity broke on the scene, all you see is intolerance? Why is that curious? Because even as an agnostic, he knew that Jesus was only intolerant when it came to one thing, and that's self-righteousness. Jesus was the 
paragon of tolerance. We see that in Peter. Peter says, brothers, let me tell you what's happening here. And then these foreigners who don't even speak the same language, by the power of the Spirit, they say, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, you need to do what we did. You need to do what we continue to do. In 1962, Jackie Kennedy made her first trip to the Vatican. I love this story. And in preparation for that visit, Pope John XIII said to his attending cardinal, the secretary of the Vatican, Cardinal Montini, what's the best way to greet the First Lady? I mean, how should I address her? And Cardinal Montini said, it is proper to either use the name Madame or Mrs. Kennedy. With that, Cardinal Montini left. Minutes later, the first lady showed up in the doorway. The Pope rushed over to her, hugged her, and said, Jacqueline. Oh, Jacqueline. And that's exactly what Peter's doing to these foreigners. He says, brothers, we've been an eyewitness to Jesus. And so have you. Think of who he is. He's the first disciple to say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, not because he's so smart, but because the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to him. And then he says to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And I want to tell you, for years I never saw what that meant. I never thought about it. Did you know that Peter there is using the words of God? All through the Old Testament, the Lord says to His people, save yourselves from this perverse and crooked generation. He doesn't say that to the Hittites or the Amorites or the Perizzites. He says it to the Israelites. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What's that? I'll tell you what it is. A generation that is only focused on themselves. Their own selfishness. Their own needs. Their own self-aggrandizement. What Peter is saying to these foreigners is, do what we're doing. Save our, yourself from a bad eye. Save yourselves from a life that's just committed to laying up treasures for yourself on earth. Remember, Peter's the one that tried to convince Jesus not to go to the cross. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, save yourself from this perverse generation. You know, in the history of all human history, there's never been a person with a better eye than Jesus. And everything Jesus does is for somebody else. You know what the lie is? 
It's a lot bigger than the Statue of Liberty lie. The lie is this. It's all about me. When the truth is, it's all about them. And when you get that truth, and it moves from your head to your heart to your eye, you begin to see Jesus raised up. And one thing your new heart will never allow you to do is to avoid His command to do justice, to love kindness. You'll find yourself doing and loving just that. So next week, we'll get deeper into it. Till then, think about that. Amen.